reading from Joshua chapter 5. We're just going to read one verse today. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. And we know that uh, we're to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Help us uh, to uh, uh, find uh, great nourishment, encouragement for our faith, for our hope, for our trust in you. And I I just uh, pray for your anointing upon my preaching that I would uh, faithfully uh, bring your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Lord willing, uh, next week we're going to be looking at the circumcision of an entire generation of Jews, an operation that would have put that uh, nation at peril of extermination for two reasons. Uh, First of all, they got circumcised on the west side of the Jordan, uh, which meant they were circumcised right in front of their enemies. And then secondly, the operation would have made any movement on the part of these men pretty painful. It would be hard to get around, and uh, it would have um, made them very vulnerable to attack on those enemies. And so we're going to be seeing next week, it it was a statement of faith, and the New Testament calls it a statement of faith in more than one way. And so what I want to look at today in this verse is why were the Canaanites the ones who were fearful? They're not the ones that appear to be that much in jeopardy at this point. You would think it would be the opposite because the Canaanites vastly outnumbered the Israelites. They had huge fortified cities. They had chariots and horses and armies. It could have been intimidating to the Jews who pretty much were just normal cavalry. I'm not cavalry. uh, What's it called? The people who just are infantry. Thank you. Um, And we want to delve into this strange, strange fear that the the Canaanites uh, had for a little bit. I personally believe that they were fearful because uh, the demons that drove these kings recognized the power of God that stood behind Israel. Those demons gave the Canaanite kings an intuitive sense that Israel had the advantage. Now, it may not have looked like it, but they definitely had the advantage. And this helps to explain why Christians today are so hated and persecuted in other countries, despite the fact that Christians say, why are they hating us? And we love them. We're doing good in the country. We are kind, self-sacrificial. We're looking out for the pagans' best interests. But the demons behind the pagans, especially those who are rulers, which is what the demons tend to congregate behind, know that sold-out Christians are indeed dangerous to their kingdom. And let me set the stage for this sermon by examining the irrational opposition to Christianity that we are uh, currently seeing in our our country. And actually, you'll see from the bulletins, they've coined a name uh, for this. Um, There's a sociology professor by the name of George Yancey coined the term Christianophobia. And I found it humorous. Uh, Counselors and psychiatrists have been uh, actually dealing with people who have this condition of Christianophobia, supposedly. 
And in their psychiatric practices, they're trying to convince them, you don't really have anything to fear from Christians. After all, Christians are far from the centers of power. Christians do not control the press, the social media, schools, civics, uh, big corporations, mainstream science, technology, the United Nations. You've got nothing to fear from, uh, from these uh, Christians. They're not a threat. At least that's what they keep trying to, to tell them. And given the escapist theology of most Christians, you know, there's probably some truth to that. They're not much of a, a, much of a threat to the world. But there is abundant evidence that the Church of Jesus Christ in America, for the most part, other than a, a pretty good rising remnant, uh, exhibits the fear and the lack of faith that the previous generation of Israelites exhibited, and one of the reasons why they had to wander in the wilderness for so long. Fear of man and faith in God cannot coexist, and we've mentioned this in the past. It cannot coexist, and that should clue us into the fact that our current generation in some ways is more like the wilderness generation than it is like the conquest generation, but that's changing. Here's the thing. The past does not have to determine the future. The past did not determine the future for this generation, and it doesn't need to for us if we're willing to live by God's promises. Uh, it really is astounding, as I've been reading again uh, in this book, to see how quickly Canaan was conquered in the next, 18, uh, next eight uh, chapters. Within those eight chapters, Canaan is turned from a place of human trafficking, abortion, child sacrifice, statism, and other forms of demonic bondage into a place that valued life, liberty, and the pursuit of justice for all. And the difference was not in the Canaanites, not at all. The difference was a people of God who would turn from lack of faith into trusting all God's promises. And I am so thankful that God is indeed raising up in our generation a very strong remnant of Christians who have a faith to trust God uh, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I think the demons recognize that. And some of the demonic fear that is caught by those in power is because I believe, at least this is my theory, it's their, the demonic realization that's driving some of this fear. Now, obviously, there's an issue of timing. God is sovereign and we cannot produce revival. Uh, some people say, we're going to schedule a revival. Yeah, right. Uh, you cannot produce revival at all. Uh, his power, um, well, I, let me just give an illustration. John Wesley, if you read their writings, and uh, George Whitfield both said they preached exactly the same way before the First Great Awakening for years and as they preached during the First Great Awakening. And their preaching before the First Great Awakening did not it did produce some really good things, but it did not produce that revival. They said it wasn't their preaching, it was a sovereign work of God that produced that revival. So here's the thing, we cannot produce a revival, only God can. We cannot ensure that God's enemies are judged, only God can. We cannot reverse history, only God can. But when it is God's timing, and when God's people live by faith, which is a sign that it is God's timing, because he's the giver of faith, right? His power is manifested in our midst in many different and astounding uh, ways and God's enemies cannot help but notice. And so today's sermon is a call to live in the realm of the supernatural. Don't worry about the opposition from the world. Our goal should be to please and serve God and leave the results up to Him. 
Now, before we look at that first point, that when God acts, people take notice, I want to reiterate the context of the next nine verses because it is so easy to miss this. All the men, as I've mentioned, were circumcised. It's a very painful operation done without anesthesia. During the days when the Israelites were healing, they would have been so sore, unable to move, that they would have been sitting ducks for the Canaanites. And if you doubt that, read Genesis 34 sometime because uh, the two, you know, the brothers had tricked the Shechemites into getting, because uh, the prince wanted to marry the daughter, uh, they tricked them into getting circumcised. And then all it took was two men, Levi and Simeon, to kill an entire city of men. How on earth could they do that? It's because these men are so sore, they have a hard time moving. They were sitting ducks. And um, so it took faith for Israel to get circumcised on the Canaanite side of the river, but they were convinced that if God is for them, who can be against them? And so we're going to only look at one verse today. Uh, I don't usually do that, but this verse is a literary unit. Uh, commentaries speak of it as a pericope, not a paragraph, but a pericope, a uh, literary unit put together. And I think it's important to, to take it that way. The first point in your outline is that when God acts, people take notice. How could they not take notice at the undeniable miracle that had happened that we looked at uh, last time? Everybody in the, in the city would have been able to see that. Um, we saw abundant evidence that the wall of water that began rising up as the waters come rushing, but God is holding those waters back, keeps going up higher and higher till it's what hydrologists estimate a minimum of 120 feet high, and it's filling uh, a good portion of that um, Jericho basin. It would have been visible from a long ways away. Now granted, seeing that miracle did not produce any, any conversions in Jericho. Um, Rahab and her family were already converted uh, before that miracle happened, right? So it didn't produce any uh, con conversions, though we should value miracles, and though God does sometimes use miracles in conversion, we sometimes attribute way too much to miracles. Some people think if there could only be some kind of a miracle, uh, maybe more people would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not necessarily uh, the case. An awesome miracle had just been witnessed by Jericho, and it still took a stand against God. And you may remember in Christ's parable, well, it's not a parable, I think it's uh, an actual history of the rich man and Lazarus, that the, um, uh, the rich man is begging uh, Abraham to ask God to send, you know, some people back to talk to his brothers. And Abraham's words are, no, if they're not ready to hear the scriptures, they're not going to believe even if somebody rises from the dead. And that was certainly the case here. They had witnessed a stupendous miracle, and yet, except for Rahab's family and the tribe of the Gibeonites, which we'll look at in chapter 9, uh, no one believed. And yet, despite unbelief, they could not help but notice God's power. It was undeniable. We'll start with the leaders. Verse 1 says that all the kings took notice. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Why were the kings so fearful? 
After all, they believed in multiple gods. Why not, you know, assimilate the Israelites and assimilate their god rather than uh, fighting against them? The more the merrier. Actually, if you study uh, Canaanite history, you'll, you'll see that they were polytheists. They believed in many different gods. Um, but I believe they were fearful because they saw this god was sovereign, could not be controlled and manipulated like the other gods could through their religion and actions. Um, to use Mr. Beaver's words, the God of the Israelites isn't safe. He isn't safe. And when God begins performing miracles, it makes demons tremble for three reasons. First, because it tangibly demonstrates God's presence and power to both demons and unbelievers. Second, it becomes very obvious God is not predictable, since miracles are not predictable and uh, he cannot be controlled, and therefore he's not just one option among multiple options. And then third, it shows that God's people are in God's favor and they have God's power. And that's why verse 1 doesn't just describe a fear of God. Because God was working through Israel, the last clause, if you take a note there, it says their hearts melted because of the children of Israel. They had Israelophobia, if I want to coin a word here. If the God above all gods is on Israel's side, it makes them fear Israel as well. And I find that fascinating. It may help to explain why Muslims and Buddhists and other demonic groups see Christians as a threat and are constantly trying to destroy their crops and their homes and to try to get rid of them. And I believe it may be because the demons recognize that God is with the Christian community and they perceive them as a threat. Anyway, this chapter will outline other characteristics that God places into a community that is about to turn the world upside down. And in future sermons, we'll look at some of those characteristics. But I just want to right now look at the miracle that we had talked about before. Miracles frequently happen in parts of the church that are living by faith. And the book of Hebrews characterizes this entire generation as a, ger a generation that lived by faith. They had exceptions, you know, AI would be one exception, but they generally lived by faith. Now it's true that God is sovereign in his distribution of miracles, but he loves to bestow miracles in communities that walk by faith. When I ministered among the Dalits in India, I was astounded at how many incurable people who had completely incurable diseases were instantly healed when I would pray over them, far more than were healed here in America. And I believe that part of the difference was that they lived in an atmosphere of faith in those churches that God can do anything. Part of the absence of miracles in Western churches may be because of Western skepticism. We Westerners are so used to explaining everything in terms of scientific uh, principles that we leave no room for the miraculous. And if there is no faith, what, what does Scripture say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, but Christianity, when lived out fully, is full of the miraculous. And so I want to look at some of the purposes for the miracle. In chapter 2, Rahab testified that hearing about the drying up of the Red Sea, which we saw was parallel to the parting of the uh, Jordan River, um, that made her and her whole family open to the gospel. So that is actually, that can be one of the effects of miracles. But in this chapter, we see another purpose. The miracle took the wind out of the sails of potential opposition. 
And let me give an illustration from Ethiopia that I think illustrates uh, both of these. Uh, Ethiopia is where I grew up. The Ethiopian authorities had captured one of our evangelists and uh, they were going to execute him uh, as an example to the community to try to scare them. And so they called the entire community together to witness this execution and they told them, this is what's going to happen to you if you follow the, the, the gods of these uh, foreigners. And so they tied him up on a road, they drove a big quattrantra toward him, that's their word for a big large truck, and they were going to squash the guy, driving back and forth over him, and just make it a sickening scene to try to put a little bit of fear into the people. Well, right before the truck uh, got before the person, it stopped as if it had hit a brick wall. And the guy pulled himself off of the steering wheel, backed up, tried again. On the third unsuccessful attempt to run over this guy, the guy <coughs> opened up his cab and he ran. He was scared for some reason. Well, all of the people who had been gathered together to witness said, if this is what the God of, the, uh, of these Christians can do, we want to hear more. So they, they ran up, they untied the guy and had him preach the gospel. Many people came to Christ. So that was a positive effect on some. But interestingly, even though the authorities saw exactly the same miracle, they refused to believe. They continued to persecute Christians. They continued to fight against the gospel. Now, it did take some of the wind out of their sails just because of the impact upon the community, um, but they continued to resist the gospel. Um, some years ago in India, a group of people was about to beat an evangelist with clubs when somehow the subject of healing uh, came up. The leader of the group had a relative who was dying, and he, he was somewhat skeptical, but he thought, hmm, well, he told the... Uh, the evangelist, if uh, you can heal my, um, my um, relative, uh, we won't beat you. And the evangelist made it very clear, I can't heal anybody, it's God who can heal. Uh, but he went with the group into the pe person's uh, house, prayed over this person, there was an instantaneous healing. And even though those people did not become Christians, they did not believe, it made them somewhat respect this evangelist and no longer uh, hinder his, his work. God frequently uses miracles in places where he is powerfully moving in the advance of his kingdom. And in this chapter, the leaders of the Canaanites had a healthy fear instilled in them. Now let's look at each clause in the rest of the verse and see how the pagan communication system, whatever that was, was used to accomplish God's purposes. We can get rightly upset with the pagan media that does everything in its power to hide the truth, distort the truth, misrepresent the truth, um, to promote pagan lies. But despite the media's antagonism to God, God often uses even the media of today to promote his kingdom. And our own church has experienced that. You know, when MSNBC <clears throat> published stuff and we started getting all kinds of, at the previous location, all kinds of... Um, picketing and uh, death threats and stuff like that. What happened was that people were combing through all of my sermons online. They were digging up dirt on me, but they were combing through that 
and the gospel, there were more people reading my uh, stuff than ever before, and eventually the homosexual leaders realized that. They said, we need to quit opposing him because too many people, he's getting too much publicity, I think is the way they worded it. And so, again, um, uh, many similar examples could be given to illustrate how God can overrule even the powerful opposition of the media. Well, in this case, we aren't told how this information spread. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, Rahab's family heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. We aren't told how. Here, the kings hear the information about the river crossing. We aren't told how. But there's clearly a spreading of information by the enemy themselves. But despite the fact that the information flows in the enemy's hands, they still got a lot right. First, the kings got God's name right. When it says they heard that the Lord had done this miracle, the word Lord is in all capital letters, and anytime you see that in the New King James Version, it's the name, the covenant name, Yehovah. How on earth did they hear about God's covenant name? Well, we don't know, but apparently the news has been spreading so far that when we get up to chapter 9 of Joshua, we're going to discover that the Gibeonites had heard this. His fame had spread far and wide, and it says there, and they were lying here, but it says, from a very far country your servants have come because of the name of, because of, the name of Jehovah your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon, and Og king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So even the common citizens of Gibeon had heard some truth, even though this news had obviously been passed on by the enemy. Now the reason I bring this up is that there is a tendency in our circles to feel hopeless and discouraged in the face of cancel culture, the leftist control of major media outlets and other forms of propaganda. And we wonder, how on earth are we going to get the truth out when the media is controlled by people who hate Christianity? Uh, it seems like it's not getting out. You know what? God's hand is not limited by the media, as we discovered. He can get accurate news out by one means or another. And Christians have been successful. Sometimes they get canceled, but... Uh, or put into Facebook jail or whatever, but they've been successful using Twitter and Google and Facebook and Pinterest and other forums for promoting the good news of the kingdom. Um, I uh, uh, just read a, a result from a Gallup poll that was pretty in encouraging to me, discouraging to some people, but it was released this uh, past July, and that study showed that Americans' confidence in the truth of what the media says has plummeted from 51%, which I guess isn't that high, in 1977, to 11% this year. Well, this means even pagans don't trust what the media is uh, putting out there as being true. Last month, uh, Gallup uh, put out another study that shows that only 2% of the population said that they could trust the government in Washington just about always, and only 19% said most of the time. Now, God knows how to shake the confidence of people in the power centers uh, of the culture. Scandal after scandal, despite attempts to hide it, has rocked uh, social media and other major media outlets as it's been shown that the media was deliberately, falsely falsifying information. Co-founding officer of the CIA, uh, Frank Wisner, said all the way back in the 1960s, 
that U.S. spy agency had so many assets in newsrooms across the country that he likened the ease at spreading propaganda to just playing an instrument. Now, that may have been hyperbole, but with things like that being out there, you can see why people's confidence is shaken. And so the bottom line is that despite this attempt to control stories, and the kings of Canaan would have been very, very motivated to control the news flow, the text says that at least the kings were getting correct information. So they got God's name, Jehovah, correct. Next, they got the details of the miracle right, that Jehovah had dried up the waters of the Jordan. There is no downplaying of the miraculous. They still fought against this God, but they were not confused about the fact that he, Jehovah, had performed a stupendous miracle. Next, they get the connection of this God to Israel right. The verse goes on to say that Jehovah had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel. This was not a fluke of nature, as some uh, compromised commentaries have tried to make it out to be, oh, it's just a landslide uh, up north, 18 miles up north, and it's just a trickle of water coming through. No, the Canaanites, no, that's not the case. This is dry. This was a miracle. It was a miracle connected to Israel, which means that the God of Israel is at war with them. They get it. And often the leaders today intuitively know that Christianity is a threat to statism. Not all forms of Christianity, but Christianity properly lived out is a threat to statism. And they get the timing right. The river was dried up only until the last Israelite had crossed that river. It says, until we had crossed over, and then the river began to flow again. So this shows uh, the Canaanites that God is watching over Israel. Timing of the parting was precise. It was geared to benefit Israel. And all of this shows that God overruled the pagan communication system to accomplish his purposes. And in the same way, we can have confidence that despite cancel culture, um, that's become part and parcel of social media, God can still overrule their reporting to make sure that the essential facts get out. So this is a verse that calls us to have faith. Don't have faith in the power of the media. That's really what some Christians have when they fear the media or they fear civil government. They're having faith in the power of the media or the power of the government. No, um, we must have faith in the far greater power of God, which is the next point. When God acts, people cannot successfully resist him. Don't give too much credit to God's enemies. Uh, scripture asks the rhetorical question I quoted earlier, if God is for us, who can be against us? As Romans 8.31, and the rhetorical expected answer is, no one, no one can. First, we see that God ensured that the Canaanite leaders heard just what needed to be heard. It says, when they heard that the Lord had dried up the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we crossed over. So the phrase, when they heard, doesn't tell us how they heard. Those kings had their own information networks, but despite controlling those networks, everyone knew that the God of the Israelites had done this deed. They were not able to spin it otherwise. God's hand is not limited by the enemy's propaganda. And we can complain all we want to about the, the government and media control information flow, but that should not stop us from fully speaking God's name in public and uh, preaching the truth of Scripture no matter how controversial uh, that may be. God will hide the truth from some, those who he wants to harden, and he can expose the truth to those whom he wants to hear. 
Now this verse gives two results of this news. First result is that their heart melted. Now this is exactly the same Hebrew word, masas, that was used of Israel in Deuteronomy 1 verse 28 when it says that the Israelites' hearts was melted, was discouraged. Uh, when they, uh, and it was melted because they had heard about the giants in the land and the fortified cities and the unconquerable nature uh, of Canaan. It's the exact reverse of this verse. So here it says that the Canaanites' heart was melted or discouraged. What is the difference? The difference was not in the Canaanites at all. Okay? The, the difference was really in what one believes. That makes a huge difference in what people believe. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I encourage you to read and to study. What you believe makes a difference in your faith. It really does. Uh, your eschatology makes a big difference. The Israelites of the previous generation were looking at life through non-scriptural eyes in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 1, 28, and they thought that God was commanding and promising the impossible. That unbelief led God to abandon that generation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. But this generation had faith in God's promises, and now it was only the Canaanites whose hearts were melted. So if you have a tendency to have your heart melt over the power of the enemy, I believe you're listening to the wrong voices. You need to fill your mind with other voices. Um, in any case, the Canaanites knew that they didn't have access to the kind of omnipotent power that the Israelites did. Now, the next phrase says, and there was no spirit in them. Now, the word ruach can be translated three different ways, as breath, wind, or spirit. And so that phrase is an idiom that I think corresponds to three uh, English idioms that use those three words. God knocked the breath of the, out of the Canaanites, or he took their breath away. Or to use a second idiom, God took the wind out of their sails. Or to use a third idiom, they lost any spirit for the fight. So God was doing this for the benefit of Israel. When the world is in the ascendancy, it is likely that the, that, that the Lord is bringing discipline upon the church to wake it up and to bring the church to faith. When the world fears Christianity, it is likely because God has put that fear into them and he is about to do something very remarkable through Christians, and I believe that he is. Let me quote from a website discussing how to cure Christianophobia without becoming a Christian. And I'm not recommending, I'm not recommending the site, right, or their cure. I'm just using it to, pro, uh, to point out the growing problem of people fearing Christianity. It says, for many suffering from Christianophobia, they don't always feel the need of treatment because they could just avoid the object of their fear. This gives people suffering from Christianophobia a feeling of control on the problem, but sometimes avoiding the Christians might not be possible or enough. It is important for someone always to seek professional help when possible. Now, I got such a kick out of reading that, um, but it is true that there are more and more people who fear Christianity because true Christianity presents God as the judge of all the earth, okay? Uh, the God who, whose laws govern the earth. Now, I would say, obviously, that um, the only cure to the so-called condition of Christianophobia is the cure that God gave to the Gibeonite tribe of Canaanites in chapter 9, and that cure is called grace. 
Uh, by grace, he gave them faith to become Christians themselves, and we'll look at that in chapter 9. It was a genuine conversion. In fact, they remained faithful to God much longer than most of the Israelites themselves did. But if there's one thing that is clear in the book of Joshua, it is that God controls all things, even the hearts of individuals. We need not fear the Canaanites or the media or the big corporations or anything else that uh, thinks it can control or manipulate a country. Fear God and serve Him. We were made for that. And any resistance to God's purposes, I think, will eventually become self-defeating. Now, the last point is that when God acts, He does so for the sake of His kingdom. And we can see that in the last two phrases. First phrase is that the waters dried up from before the face of the children of Israel. Now, that's an amazing statement when you think about it. Why does he not say that it dried up from before the face of God? I mean, it's God who pushed back the waters, not Israel. So why is, it, why is it wording it this way? Well, I believe it's because God identified with Israel. He was with Israel. This miracle was done on behalf of Israel. When Israel was doing God's will, God's very presence and power was with them. And that means that both ideas are true. Uh, by the way, it's also another of many proofs that the wall of water was not 18 miles north. No, it was before the face of Israel. It was right next to them. I think that's important to understand. The second phrase was that there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Again, notice their will to resist was because of the children of Israel. God is acting on behalf of his kingdom. The Canaanites recognize that Israel has a power and a presence of God that they did not have. And I believe that when the church is indwelt and empowered by God, the world will recognize the difference. And so my admonition to you this morning is to not be like the previous generation of Israelites in, Je in Deuteronomy 1 verse 28, whose heart melted, you know, melted over the Canaanites, whose wind was taken out of their sails, so to speak. Instead, trust that if God is for us, who can be against us? It is the world that is destined to fall before the sword of Scripture and to eventually become a Christian world. May the Lord hasten that day. Amen. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word, and I pray that our hope in your promises would remain steadfast all of our days, that uh, no one in this world, media, government, persecutors, otherwise, would be able to take the wind out of our sails because we know that if you are for us, who could be against us? Uh, Father, I, I pray that our faith would be a conquering faith, that you would give to us the faith of this uh, generation of Jews that uh, took the conquest of Canaan in a very powerful way. Uh, we desire to see your kingdom growing. We desire to see your glory being lifted up. We desire to see uh, the Great Commission being fulfilled. And so whatever changes in us that need to be made and in our churches that need to be made, Father, would you make those uh, so as to use us as tools for the advancement of your kingdom. Bless this, your people. Encourage them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.